Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever wondered, what is this magnificent tree I'm looking at? I'm Michelle Fulner, and today I'm going to help you answer that question, because today's episode is all about oak trees. And sure, there are a lot of magnificent trees out there, especially here in California, but oaks are my favorite, and I'll get into why that is a little later. But making this episode has given me even more reasons to love these trees. And my guest, Zara Wiley, is the perfect person to guide us through such topics as the staggering variety of wildlife supported by oak trees, the types of oaks present in California. California, what makes a tree an oak tree, acorn flower recipes, what people can do and are doing to restore oaks to the landscape, and what oak trees have to do with the Declaration of Independence. Zara has spent the past 19 years advocating for, educating about, and planting locally native oak trees all across the Sacramento region with the Sacramento Tree Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to growing and stewarding Sacramento's urban forest. Zara's education is in environmental horticulture and urban forestry. She did the restoration ecology emphasis. Throughout her career, she estimates that she has helped plant or be part of programming that planted 30 to 35 thousand trees, personally planting about 2,500 of those, and estimates that about 75 to 80 percent of those were native oak trees. Zara uses both she and they pronouns, so you'll hear me switch back and forth between those throughout this episode. I cannot wait to share this interview with you, but first, let me give a quick shout out to everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. Ratings and reviews make my day, and let me know that there are people out there listening to and enjoying this show, and they keep Golden State Naturalist up in the charts, which helps more people discover the show. I cannot tell you how much that helps as an independent podcaster. Today, I'm going to read you a short and very sweet review. This is from Wayland, or Oh Island. It says, a great place to learn about California nature. Only four episodes in, and I'm totally looking forward to lots of future episodes, so thank you so much for that. You don't have to write a big, long review to have a big impact. Another thing you can do to help me and the podcast is to become a patron. My current goal is to go a little farther afield and interview naturalists from all across the state. And Patreon is the most direct way to make that happen. For as little as $4 a month, you can also get access to all kinds of video and audio extras, as well as behind the scenes about how this show is getting made. Folks who sign up as oak level patrons, that's the highest level because I love oak trees, before the end of April will get a special little gift from me in May. Just make sure to include your mailing address when you sign up. I promise I'm not creepy and I will only use your address to mail you a present. That's it. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Okay, let's get to the episode and learn about native oak trees and what incredible additions they are to our landscape in California and beyond with ecologist, oak enthusiast, and all-around great human, Zara Wiley, on this episode of Golden State Naturalist. If you look at the tops of the oaks, they're just starting to leaf out, especially the valley oaks. Of course, we're standing under an interior live oak, which is an evergreen native oak, so it already has leaves, but the rest don't. They're starting to wake up. I met up with Zara in Folsom, California, right at the end of February, and things were just starting to turn green again. Um, and it's this sort of yellowy green, these brand new leaves. 
Yeah, I love the, the early spring color. It's really, really nice. Pretty. And right after those come out, then you'll start to see the flowers. And then we'll all start sneezing in March. Uh, <laughs> what do the flowers look like on an oak tree? Oak trees aren't known for their flower displays. So what do they look like? Right. So um, oaks have both male and female flowers, to put it in a very generic way. So there's the ones that create the pollen. Those are the male flowers. And they're kind of long, dangly bobs. They're mm -hmm. called catkins. They're kind of fun to look at. And then the female flowers, the ones that receive the pollen and turn into an acorn, are very tiny. You have to really look closely and carefully in early spring to see them. Because once they've received that po pollen or not, they don't all get fertilized. They either swell and turn into an acorn or they fall off. And you can find them on the ground if you really know what you're looking for. But they're teeny tiny, like the, the point of a pencil. Oh, wow. So before this interview, I had seen catkins on oak trees, but I just thought that was the whole flower. I had no idea there were these little teeny tiny flowers in addition to that. And if you're not sure what a catkin looks like, it really does look like a cat's tail that's dangling down over a countertop or off the side of a bed or something. And so when I looked up the etymology for this, I was fully expecting it to mean cat tail, but it actually means kitten in obsolete Dutch. So go figure. But the definition for it is a flowering spike of trees such as willow and hazel. Catkins are typically downy, pendulous, composed of flowers of a single sex and wind pollinated. And what color are the flowers? So they're the same really bright spring green on most of the oaks, at least here in, in Sacramento. So there's some other oaks that you get some different color variations, more gray or more reddish even. But, okay. Yeah. So there's where we're standing there's two massive valley oak trees and then there's a whole lot of younger trees which you had something to do with so what happened here <laughs> yeah so um we're along hum, hum, humbug creek in Folsom and this town developed and kept a lot of open creekways and bikeways to support their bike paths and also to retain some of these really majestic ancient giant oak trees. Some people call them heritage oaks mm. around here but that's really a not very scientific term. It's more of a whether or not you have to protect them. There's all these things that have to do with heritage mm. oaks. Um, but these are very large, you know, five to six foot wide trunks, probably hundreds of years old. And the rest of the younger trees here, so this place was really, soil was scraped and moved about to contain the creek and to put in the bike path and to do the development. And other than these two really large, very old oak trees, there was not much going on here. So in 2005, the Tree Foundation worked with the city to plant trees along the creekway mm -hmm. and then also to go along the bike path because we all know how enjoyable it is to hike and walk on a bike path in Sacramento in the summer if oh. there are not trees, yeah. which there was not when we started working here. Zara and Sac Tree making the world a better place. It looks like a really nice, beautiful, young forest now with two really massive older trees in it. And in case you're a local and you're wondering where this is, it's right across the street from Folsom Kids Play Park. So definitely check that out, especially if you like to ride a bike or if you have kids that would enjoy a playground. And then there's, there's another section of trees that's kind of out in this open field. And, mm -hmm. and that was another project that I believe was done by Regional Transit for their light rail line oh, okay. when they built it out to Folsom in the late 2000s. And where do you source all those acorns from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a setup. I know the answer to this. <laughs> we shake down squirrels. Um, <laughs> No, um, since, gosh, 2010, the Tree Foundation for our nursery, we realized we weren't able to purchase oaks that were good quality, that actually we knew the sourcing of. A lot of the stuff that people sell in the nursery trade 
as a native oak is not necessarily. Mm. It's some sort of strange hybrid because they just picked up acorns from who knows where. Oh, gotcha. Um, so we decided it would be really fun to work with the community and gather our own acorns so we could make sure we had the best ones and that we grew really good trees for projects like this. And so we've been doing that since then with volunteers. Every fall we scamper about in the forest and learn about oak trees and go pick up lots of acorns, which is a really fun way for people to connect because you see them and a lot of kids pick them up and play with them and put them in their pockets. I know I did. I still do. They still end up in my washing machine on a regular basis. But it's not, if you slow down and actually like think about the process of this tiny little seed becoming these enormous oak trees, especially here where you can see seeds on the ground like we're finding today and then these kind of teenage trees mm -hmm. and then the grandmother oak. It's really a nice way to connect people and realize this is a process we all need to engage with because it takes much longer than a human lifetime. So I actually got to participate in the acorn harvest last year, which was super fun. And I loved it because we got to go out into the forest and Zara actually taught us the different types of oak trees that are local to the area. And there's a lot of things to think about when you're collecting acorns. And one of them is oaks are, as we mentioned before, wind pollinated. So not only do you need to make sure you have the right type of oak tree, but you also need to make sure that it is physically isolated enough from other oak trees that might hybridize it so that you get the actual variety of acorn that you're looking for. The other cool thing about this project is that the acorns are then given to Ellen elementary school classes to grow into little seedlings, which is super cool. I love that. It's cool that kids get to help reforest a city that they might grow up in and actually get to see those trees as they grow older. So these trees have been here for 15, 17 years, something mm -hmm. like that. And they are, they're, you know, I mean, they're getting pretty big. Certainly, you know, not approaching what the grandmother oak looks like, but they're filling out. They're not saplings anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're definitely providing shade. I, mm -hmm. These are between about 22 and 25 feet tall mm -hmm. with um, trunks on them between about, what, eight? I saw one that was close to about 25 inches, which is pretty good size. Um, they were planted as seedlings from the Tree Foundation Nursery. So these are really the best trees and the smallest size trees possible that we can plant. One thing that you should totally look at, so we have the teenage trees along the bikeway mm -hmm. and they're all, you know, they have some variety in size, but they're all, you know, 20, 25 feet tall. Mm -hmm. And then you see the other trees that were planted eight years later. Mm. They're all about the same size, right? Mm -hmm. The ones that were planted out by the other project were in these huge 24 inch boxes Oh. and were planted later. And our little tiny seedlings are way bigger and look actually a lot healthier than theirs do. Wow. So planting the smallest tree you can tolerate is really helpful if you're looking, you know, these trees don't get irrigated. They don't, they don't get much care. Mm -hmm. So if you want them to grow that way, you really want to plant little baby trees. Is that because then they kind of grow up used to it? Like they, they I don't know, for lack of a better way of putting it? It's all about roots. You know, it's mm -hmm. the part we can't see and that it's hard to imagine. So the, these oak trees have grown these massive root systems that mm -hmm. we can't see. And the other ones were grown to be big in a box and kept having their root systems just mangled and uh -huh. kept small. And so it's going to take them a lot longer to adjust and work out of that. If they even manage to, you'll see there's a bunch of dead trees in there okay. that just didn't make it. So allowing their root system to grow really healthy and big mm -hmm. will help you get a bigger tree. ChooseNatives.org points out a whole bunch of reasons why planting a smaller tree is actually a way better decision. So saplings are affordable, 
low effort planting, you do it yourself because it's quick and easy. A tiny planting hole means less disturbance to nearby established tree roots. Virtually no root issues such as girdling or severing, able to develop a healthy root collar. Growth can be equal to or faster than a large caliper tree. So you might even find your little tiny tree catching up with a bigger one. Possible to find locally sourced and local ecotype saplings. Easy to start a tree from seed yourself. Environmentally greener because you're transporting a lower weight or maybe not even transporting at all. Opportunity to selectively prune limbs for a healthy tree structure. And it's simple and inexpensive to plant a future forest all at once or over time as the trees grow up together. So there's so many reasons to plant a teeny tiny tree rather than planting a bigger, more established one. Another reason is that even though it seems like oaks grow slowly at first, that's actually because a lot of the growth is happening underground where you aren't seeing it. A lot of the growth, like Zara points out, is in the roots. And so you're not seeing all that growth that's happening. And if you take that tree and you transplant it, you've undone all of that early work that that tree was working so hard to do. But let's jump now from the beginning of an oak tree's life all the way to the end of it. So we stopped by the mother oak and you were saying that it's, it's declining. And yeah. how, how can you tell? Well, I've been watching this tree for 17 years because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a really, really amazing specimen. Really large tree with these big gnarly branches that reach down to the ground. Um, and what you can't see that I know is that some of these very large limbs have come off of the tree in the last mm-hmm. few years. And it's very normal for a really old ancient tree like this to have lots of big logs and branches lying around Mm -hmm. because that's what they do when they get really old is they keep from completely falling apart by dropping the load when it gets too heavy. Mm. It's kind of a smart thing to do. It makes it, it's one of the reasons that people don't like to have oak trees that are this big and old over their houses Mm -hmm. or their playgrounds or other places where there's things to hit like people Mm -hmm. um, because that that is what they do. It often happens in late summer Mm -hmm. or when they have a really large acorn crop, they get really heavy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this tree just hasn't been looking as vigorous. It's definitely leafing out, which is good but it's been dropping more and more branches. There's some big cracks starting to be on the main trunk. There's some more holes further down. But oak trees take a really long time to die. Everybody, I've heard a few times that, you know, it takes at least 10 years for a big Mm -hmm. oak to die. And another thing that happened last, the last two falls, this tree has had pretty good acorn crops, which for a really old tree, I have not found to be very common. Although I have seen it happen and then those trees declined pretty quickly and, and died, so. A last big push, a last effort for reproduction. Yeah, although you'll notice if you look around, do you see any baby oak seedlings? Mm-mm. No, there aren't any. And Why is that? Well, I mean, it's probably a whole bunch of different reasons. We have a lot of non-native grass cover here, which oh. would be competing mm-hmm. with anything. Um, this place is highly disturbed by people. I know that they've been grazing it some, mm. um, which is really hard on little teeny tiny baby trees. Mm. As Zara points out, Grazing these areas can be really tough on little trees because the grazing animals come in and eat them up. But the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service says that grazing lands are a major source of watershed filtration, groundwater recharge, and carbon sequestration, providing improved water and air quality. I've seen some grazing lands in oak savannas actually just put little cages around seedling oak trees, which seems like it might be a good compromise between those two things. But unfortunately for the little seedlings where Zara and I were, grazers were not the only thing out to get them. 
there was a fire. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. A lot of things can kill a baby, mm. a baby seedling. We also have had these terribly dry winters that we're enjoying right now. And if, if the acorns just fall on the ground and start to germinate, they'll, they'll pretty much dry and, and die out before they can really get a good hold. So they really need to be like tucked in somewhere. And one of the reasons that's sad that they took those big logs is that often with these really old trees where you'll see their new trees coming up is under logs and fallen wood and other protected places mm. around the mother tree. Because it's trapping moisture there? It's trapping moisture, it's protecting it from being stepped on and eaten mm -hmm. and it just seems to give it a little a little spot, a little more protection to get going. Gotcha. So and there's actually been studies recently that mother trees can recognize their own offspring because you know underground all of the roots are connected. Mm -hmm. You know, this is this is an oak super highway of information here. All of these oak trees are connected to one another through their roots and, and through, you know, fungi. There's all these great things under the soil we can't see and that they'll actually help the seedlings grow bigger by connecting their root systems and through the fungi mm -hmm. to get them growing, which is really fascinating. And we should have guessed that, right? Of course, they're gonna help their babies. We don't give trees enough credit. No, they're very smart. Okay, so you might've noticed that Zara talks about oak trees almost like they're people, which I love. To me, this conveys not a mistaken idea about what trees are or aren't, but a deep reverence for the aspects of them that are often dismissed or overlooked, or aspects that are often more like us than we'd like to acknowledge. After all, it's easier to cut down a tree we see as an object than one we see as a living thing who can recognize and help her own offspring. And I think this concept is also resonant for a lot of us, on a personal level. I mentioned earlier that oaks are my favorite trees, and in large part that's because of the time I spent exploring the oak woodland on my great-grandfather's property when I was seven and eight years old and my family lived with him. At that age, the forest feels so alive as to almost seem sentient. And there was one particular tree, a coast live oak, if I can trust my memory after 30 years, that grew sideways on a hill. It had a big, thick trunk that you could walk right up, and my brother and I often played there, jumping off the side and rolling down the hill, and we also rested there, and it became my thinking spot, and I grew very attached to that tree. And here's the thing, in a scientific sense, I know that tree doesn't have retinas or eardrums or neurons that can fire in recognition of a person. It doesn't have cognition, but in a spiritual sense, I feel a deep connection to it and a relationship with it almost as if the tree is a family member. I think this is a deeply human way of thinking about the natural world. And I think that the ancient wisdom in a more anthropomorphic view of nature actually got us to many of the same truths and conclusions that science has led us to now. For example, my feeling that these trees are my family members seems less insane when we realize that we share 50% of our DNA with trees. Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about a similar concept in her book Braiding Sweetgrass, in which she discusses indigenous ways of knowing, including looking at plants as teachers, and ties this to her scientific ways of knowing as a biologist. So check that book out if this concept is interesting to you. Okay, I know I got a little in the weeds with this one, but I wanted to share a little about why these trees are so important to me personally, and also advocate for embracing our intuition and the science at the same time, because they aren't as mutually exclusive as we sometimes assume. After all, being a naturalist is largely about observation and presence, both of which underpin both scientific knowing and transcendent moments of awe. And how do we use those powers of observation when looking at old oak trees. Let's hear what Zara has to say. 
So if you didn't, if you hadn't been watching this tree for so long mm -hmm. and you were just walking around and you were looking at the health of the tree, like what kinds of signs would you look for for an old oak's health? Yeah, there's lots of things. Fungi, if they have a lot of things growing out of them. You can look mm. for lots of like cracking and branches. So you know. those are like rotting wood if, if the fungi are growing out of them? Yeah, that's usually what happens is these trees end up just totally falling apart. Mm. Um, You'll see there's you know, woodpecker holes, there's little bird nests in here. All of those mm -hmm. are ways for pathogens to get in. Mm -hmm. uh, and over time, you know, if you get water and moisture and fungus and damage, you know, at some point it'll become too much. Mm -hmm. And usually, like I said, what happens is they totally fall apart. Sometimes they'll just rot from the inside. You'll see trees where they were this big and then they fell apart and then they've re-sprouted. Wow. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Unfortunately, we frequently decide that it becomes a hazard and then we just cut them down. Mm. Um, whereas if they wanted to, you know, fence this off from people, mm -hmm. which would be, might let it live longer, but would probably be sad for people because you get this great ability to experience this really cool tree. They right. could probably leave it forever, but at some point they will probably make the decision that since this is an open public space, that having it fall apart on people is not a good thing to have yeah. happen. Yeah. Very reasonable, very it sad is. sometimes. It is, it's sad. <laughs> the coexistence problem can be yeah. difficult. And that's often why you'll see little fences or like, mm -hmm. you know, in state parks, they do this sensitive area. Oh, right. You know, that's really wise for you to respect that because an expert went in there and said, you know, this tree is amazing, but it's probably gonna fall apart. So we should right. not have encouraged people to stand under it and take their family photos with it. This giant sequoia with trunk-sized branches. Yeah. <laughs> One could fall down at any time. Yeah, exactly. Trees do sometimes hurt people. They don't uh -huh. mean to. And so it's important to be thoughtful when you see those kinds of things. <laughs> Keep yourself safe. It's always a good idea to be aware of your surroundings in nature. And if you're paying attention in an oak woodland, you might notice some very strange growths on the branches, stems, or leaves of some of the trees. What are those? All right, so we took a few paces away from the grandmother oak and we're looking at a much younger, is this a valley oak too? Yes. And it's covered in oak galls, just covered in these everywhere from like the, the, the size of a nickel, to like almost the size, not quite the size of my fist, but like getting close. <laughs> so what's going on with these? What are <laughs> they? Why is this happening? Is this part of the tree or is it something different? Well, sort of. It's, I mean, it was grown by the tree. So I've heard these called oak apples a lot, which I think is a pretty good visual mm -hmm. for people who can't see what we're looking at right now. And especially in winter with the valley oak as a deciduous tree, it looks very strange. It's got all these round balls hanging off of it. And at this point, most of them are black in color and that's because they're actually being infected by a fungus. Um, oh. The fresh ones, if you see them in the spring, they can go through a very almost green apple color to even bright red colored. Um, and they're very fleshy and fresh. And what's happening is that a little teeny tiny insect called a parasitoid wasp laid an egg in um, one of the stem, the cells here, in just the branches. And that tricked the tree into growing this funny growth. And it's got, um, you can see actually some of them have little pinholes. Mm -hmm. That's where the wasp came out of its little nest here and fell into the ground where they then become their flighted version, mm. uh, at least for this one, this is the, the oak apple gall. Um, so it provides like a protective space for the juvenile mm -hmm. wasps and does it provide food for them too? Yeah, so I think that they do, ch no, do you know what? I don't, mm, I don't actually know about that. Some of the parasitoid wasps do eat and some of them don't. Okay. 
And so there's a really, there's actually a lot of different ones. There's mm -hmm. a lot that make really interesting structures on oak leaves. You know, in the summer you can find them, especially late summer, that are red and pink and purple and fuzzy and look like funny hats. But I don't know specifically about this one. If I'm not mistaken, this is Andricus Quercus californicus mm. is the name, which is basically like the valley oak, Andricus parasitoid wasp. Okay, so I looked it up and yes, this is Andricus Quercus californicus. Andricus Quercus californicus. Okay, I'm really proud for being able to say that. Anyways, Zara was completely right because they've been right about everything so far. Yes, the larvae do grow inside the galls and feed on the gall material. Another fun fact, this is according to bugguide.net, only parthenogenic females are known for this species. So that means that there are only females, there are no males, or at least no male individuals have ever been found. So that's crazy. Also, the range of these little gals is all the way from Washington and Oregon through California and into the northern reaches of Mexico. But there are actually a lot of different types of oak gall wasps and... Within the oak families, they do tend to have their own wasps that are attached to them. So you don't necessarily find the same galls here on this valley oak, Quercus lobata, like on the interior live oak over there. Mm -hmm. There's a really cool one that we get in the Sacramento Valley on the interior live oak that is like red and round with a point and it's like spotted with yellow and it looks oh crazy. Gosh. It looks like somebody hung a fishing lure or something in the oak tree. How big is it? It's pretty good size. They, they get to be about, you know, the size of a ping pong ball. I don't think I've ever seen one of yeah. those. Those are so, that's so cool. And there's some that are pointy and look like puffer fish. And mm. yeah, if you get into an oak tree and start looking around, you'll find all sorts of stuff. Um, there's actually other, there's some other galls on this tree too. There's some other, these stem galls, these oh, just like elongated yeah. large it's places. Like lumps on the stems. Mm -hmm. And then here's an old, this is almost gone. This is a button gall, which is one of my favorites. You can't see it, it's coming apart. I didn't get a good look at these in person, so I just looked up a picture and they look exactly like a bunch of teeny tiny little Cheerios plastered across the back part of an oak leaf. It actually looks exactly like the floor underneath my two-year-old daughter's chair after she's been eating Cheerios. And my dog is sick of Cheerios and he won't eat them anymore. Come on, Chewy, do us a solid. These button galls, however, do act as a food source for somebody because they actually exude honeydew and they're tended by ants. Oh, wow. And in late summer, you'll find honeybees actually gathering food from an oak tree. So oh, that's really cool. Pollinators actually can eat off oak trees that's too. That's really cool. So yeah, it's it's funny because I always just, I didn't know until, I don't probably in the summer or late summer, early fall when we went out looking at oak trees, that there were different types of galls. I thought that these oak apples were oak galls, right? Like that was mm -hmm. my knowledge of them. Yeah. And then we were looking at leaves and on the leaves, there were these little tiny, they look like sea creatures. They look like Some of them, sea yeah. stars or, you know, yeah. <laughs> anemones are just crazy, colorful, bright little things stuck to these leaves. And I had no idea that those were oak galls. Mm -hmm. And there's thousands of species. I mean, if you wanted to find your own species that no one's ever found, like galls on oaks in California, you that's probably not a bad place to go searching around because mm -hmm. there's a lot of diversity. And, you know, th probably thousands, thousands. I think the last thing I read was there's at least 5,000 insects that have a very close relationship with California's native oak trees. And how do the oak trees feel about that? Well, so like this tree, this tree has a lot. Uh -huh. And so, kind of overrun. It's taking, I mean, it does take energy 
from the mm -hmm. tree to do this. I have seen trees where it's just so, like this This is moderate. I've seen trees that are ridiculous. They mm. have so many that they're clearly being stunted. But in general, when you, when you look at it, it's not a parasitic relationship in okay. most cases. Does the tree get anything out of it? I don't know, that's a good question. I like to think that they're really happy supporting you know, this whole world because, right, they're making these insects and other mm -hmm. things eat those insects. And, you know, so this is part of their supporting this whole series of, you know, animal interactions that otherwise would not exist. Mm -hmm. So I think they're happy about it. Yeah, that's it's cool. It's kind of decorative too, right? It is, yeah. And kids throw them at each other. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. <laughs> I, have, I have vivid memories of that as a kid. <laughs> and you can make ink out of it. Have you heard that no. one? So there's, like, this is not verified. People say that the Declaration of Independence was signed with oak gall ink. What? Don't know if that's true. Wow. Please don't call me and be like, that is not true. <laughs> this is true. According to archives.gov, it's the National Archives website, somebody named Timothy Matlack was a clerk in the Pennsylvania State House, and he was the scribe in charge of writing the Declaration of Independence. And it says the iron gall ink, the kind typically used in Matlack's day, included tannic acid from oak galls, iron from from nails or iron scraps, a binder, often gum arabic, and sometimes a colorant. Light in color when it was applied, the ink darkened as it oxidized to an intense purplish black. Over time, iron gall inks age to a warm brown, which is why we see the warm brown color on the declaration today. Unfortunately, Congress traveled with this document a whole heck of a lot early on, and it was pretty rough on it, and so the ink didn't hold up super well. I don't know if it would have held up better if it was a different type of ink or if it was just the travel, but that's why it is so faded today. You said that the little wasps are tiny. Like, how big are we talking? A few millimeters? Or yeah, they're, they're really small. Um, they're very hard to see with the naked eye. I mean, really? you can, but most of them are really, really small. So you say wasp, and people are like, right. oh, no, I'm going to get stung. And it's like, right. you're never going to see the insect. Wow. They're very small. That explains why I've never seen one before. Because yeah. I've always wondered. I've always like, I've been around a lot of oak trees. I've seen a lot of oak galls. I've never seen the teeny, creature that teeny. makes them. That explains it. Yeah. And we're standing right next to some native elderberries. Yes. And they're kind of just springing back to life right now. I'm pretty sure that this area burned, which is why those look especially gnarly. Mm -hmm. Is that there was a little spot fire here. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's springtime. They're looking very energetic, poofing up out. Elderberries and valley oaks are always friends. They're very, very frequently in close proximity. Is it just because they like the same conditions or yeah. do they have a relationship where they help each other? Or? I don't think so. I No one has probably actually explored that <laughs> looked for that yeah. um i wouldn't be surprised if they're all communicating underground on the fungal network yeah. but i just want you to know that i googled elderberry and valley oak relationship and i didn't find anything relevant so i don't know um, especially with the valley oaks they, they like we're in this area in Folsom that's kind of unique right we have much thicker soil than in most places we have mm -hmm. a lot more moisture because we're we're kind of next to the creek and then next to this overflow channel so yeah mm -hmm. this is a perfect place for elderberry to be nice at this point, Zara and I found a very nice, comfortable log to sit down on in full view of the beautiful grandmother oak for the full interview. You'll hear that in just a minute after this break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, before we get to the full interview, I just want to plug one more thing. And this is not a paid ad. It's just something that I think is really cool and worthwhile. And that's the City Nature Challenge. So on the City Nature Challenge website, it says started in 2016 as a competition between San Francisco and Los Angeles. The City Nature Challenge, CNC, has grown into an international event, motivating people around the world to find and document wildlife in their cities. So basically, this is an opportunity. It's really easy. All you have to do is get the iNaturalist app, and then you go and you take pictures of wildlife that you see in your city. And that could be plants, it could be animals, it could be fungi, it could be evidence of life. So like some feathers that you see showing that a bird was there. Any of those count. You take a picture, you upload it onto iNaturalist, and that's it. It's super easy. That's April 29th through May 2nd. And then the second part is May 3rd through May 8th, where people go in and identify what was found. Now, this is a friendly competition among now a whole bunch of cities all the way across the world. I looked at the map and there are pins on many continents, <laughs> maybe all of them except for Antarctica. I love this for so many reasons, one of which is just that, of course, a competition between NorCal and SoCal is going to end up blowing up and being worldwide. That's super cool. I love that. And also, it's an opportunity for everyday people like you and me to go out and observe things. And then that information can actually be used by scientists who are researching plants and animals and, and other life maybe in your area. It's incredibly useful. And I've heard of scientists doing really cool things with it, like studying which groups of species are isolated and people are studying the effects of climate change using iNaturalist. So it's a really cool form of citizen science and something I definitely encourage you to get involved with. Okay, now on to the full interview. All right, so we found this beautiful log to sit down on. It's huge and comfortable, and I've been warned to not sit on it in the summer. Yes, there's rattlesnakes out here. <laughs> so this is a good time of year if you want to come sit on a log and gaze at this beautiful tree. But I was going to ask you, how did you get interested in oak trees? Well, I've always liked oak trees. As a kid, I would definitely pick up acorns and feed them to my pet goats. And I remember vividly, like, wearing my cowboy boots, like, smashing them. With oh, the, you know, yeah. the heels in your cowboy boots. Yes. You can smash things really well. Smashing lots of acorns that way. And then, you know, the birds and other stuff enjoying that. But then I, after school, I, w I was studying at UC Davis. And I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. But sick animals make me sad. So I decided to mm -hmm. not go that route and was really enjoying the nexus between horticulture and ecology. So that's what I studied. And then I was looking for a job and was like, what's this Sacramento Tree Foundation? They need somebody mm -hmm. to go plant oak trees. And I was like, I am up for that. <laughs> I am your person. Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> and I've, I've been here ever since. That's fantastic. So did you climb a lot of oak trees when you were a kid? Um, I mostly climbed redwoods. Oh, where um, did you grow up? Uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Okay. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very interesting forest. So there's, there are a lot of oak trees there, but I mostly climbed redwoods. Nice. Yeah. And this, we're going to go real basic here. What is an oak tree? 
Oh, an oak tree, excellent. So um, an oak tree is a tree that produces an acorn and it is in a specific plant family where that's the main trait. Um, there's one in California, the, the tan oak is not quite in the same lineage as mm. the Quercus oaks. It's, it's in its own little branch, but it's not really important because anytime you have a plant that's making this huge fruit, it's really important and impactful on the rest of the ecosystem because it's got this big, yummy, delicious nut for everybody to eat. Mm -hmm. So yeah, oaks are, are anything within Quercus. Um, and it's a complicated family. It's, it's all over the world, mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. California has a lot of oaks. It has at least 20. You can argue about what's a species or not, because there's mm. some things that once we're getting into the genetics of things, which is happening currently, they're deciding, oh, that's actually not its own species. It's a hybrid of these mm. three trees that mm -hmm. are in this weird place. So if you notice that it has an acorn, you can call it an oak tree and be very confident. All right, great. Is there another way to identify them? Because, I mean, you look at the leaves and they're radically different from each other and you look at the bark and it looks really different. So if, if it's not the time of year for acorns, mm -hmm. is there a way to tell? It's much more challenging. Hmm. Yeah. No, I, I would say just for a layperson, no. It's too much diversity. It's, it's too much to learn. I mean, there's not that many oak trees in California, mm -hmm. so it's reasonable... Like I said, there's about 20 some odd. And most people live in cities, most forests in California. I, actually, the city forest is much more diverse than your mm. natural forest. So yeah, I think the best thing to do is if you're really like, oh, I care, I'm curious about the oak trees is just learn what's in your vicinity mm -hmm. and then go from there. So I can see why Zara says to just learn the types of oaks that you're around because there is so much diversity in every aspect that I can think of of oak trees, ranging from their size, which can be really small and shrub-like, to just massive. And the type of bark that you might see on the tree might be smooth, it might be dark brown, it might be more grayish. There's all kinds of different colors. It might be really rough. Some oak trees are actually cork oaks, so their bark is literally cork that goes into your wine bottle or to your olive oil stopper, which is of course radically different from that super smooth bark that you see on some oak trees. Then the leaves are a whole nother issue. So some of the leaves are very round and smooth. Some have a lot of lobes. Some are a bit more curvy. Some are spiny and look like holly leaves. So there's not really a surefire way of identifying an oak tree, except that they all have acorns. So if you see acorns on a tree, you can be sure it's an oak tree, but there's a lot of reasons why you might see an oak tree with no acorns. For example, it's the wrong time of year, or the oak tree isn't old enough to have started producing acorns yet. So I think Zara's advice to just learn maybe the most common types of oak trees in your region is going to be really helpful if you're trying to identify the trees. And one of the most common types of oak trees here in Sacramento, and also in a lot of lower elevation areas in the state, are valley oak trees. We're looking at a valley oak tree right now. This is huge. And we're surrounded by valley oak trees. And I'm mm -hmm. noticing just how massive this beautiful yep. tree is. Are valley oak trees bigger than oak trees? Or can they all get that big? Or what's what, what's the biggest oak tree that we have in California? Uh, well, that would be the valley oak. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, there's there's a little bit of argument. I hate to... When you, when you start measuring things, like people are always like, well, I found one that's more massive. Right. <laughs> um, it's generally accepted that the valley oak is the one that gets the largest. Mm -hmm. It gets the tallest and the broadest of any oak in California. And, and we have some oaks that, are, that most people would not even call trees. They're shrub-sized. They're okay. very small. And it kind of makes sense if you think about where the valley oaks live, right? They live on our very best soils in the very mm -hmm. bottoms of valleys where they get a lot water, of sunshine and water. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is great. I mean, you notice it's huge. They're also, at least for the Sacramento region, that is the, the species of tree that is currently sequestering the most carbon for us. Oh, great. So, um, yes, redwoods, redwoods in California, they definitely get more, but redwoods are not appropriate for the Sacramento Valley, mm. even though if you look around, you'll see them everywhere. Right. Okay. And why aren't <laughs> they appropriate for this area? Uh, they need a lot of water mm -hmm. and they, at some point, they just get really unhappy here. We also have in various places, there's things in the water that they don't like that make mm. them look bad. Mm -hmm. They're just not really climate appropriate. And in most places when they look good, it's because people are using a huge amount of potable water to keep mm. them healthy. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that's not reasonable in California anymore. Right. So if you live closer to the coast, then maybe plant a, a coast redwood. Yeah. But if you live somewhere in the Central Valley, then maybe think about some oak trees. Yeah, and, and also if, if you really like to have birds and wildlife and actually be part of your ecosystem, mm -hmm. the oaks are that and the redwoods are not so much. So it's really important to have the plants to support your wildlife. And if you don't have locally native plants, you're, you're gonna make a food desert mm -hmm. for, for those cute little birds. And you know, everybody has a favorite wildlife, right? Like I really like to see the bluebirds. Mm -hmm. You're only gonna see them in places where we, we have enough wild native places for them to get the insects that they need to eat. So right. Tied to the bugs. And does it matter if people plant native oaks? Or is like an oak tree gonna do the same thing because it makes an acorn or do they need no. to be local ones? So if you really get down to the nitty gritty, it's best to have what's local to you. Oaks overall in North America are by far the most important tree species for biodiversity. Mm. They support the most organisms and the wow. most complex food webs. There's a lot of great stuff happening with I, Douglas Tallamy is probably the one person who is evangelizing this the best okay. um, throughout. <laughs> we'll um, he, he writes books about making your, your own yard a habitat, mm. and that's really the best thing we can do as far as supporting wherever we're at. So Zara emailed me later about this book that they were thinking about, and it is called The Nature of Oaks by Douglas Tallamy. So I went and bought this book and I was interested in it. I was planning on kind of skimming through it to research this episode a little bit. No, I started it and I couldn't stop reading it and I finished the entire book and I've written all over it and I've got a bunch of sticky notes in it. It is so good. And if I wasn't gonna get hammered for copyright infringement, I would seriously read you way more of it than you probably want to hear without just getting the audiobook yourself. So in the book, Douglas Tallamy goes into many of the species that are super important and are supported by oak trees. Here's a little excerpt for you. I promise I'll keep it short. During their impressive lifespan, a single tree will drop up to 3 million acorns and serve as a lifeline for countless creatures, including dozens of bird species, rodents, bears, raccoons, opossums, rat snakes, fence lizards, several butterflies, hundreds of moths, cinnipid gall wasps and other predators and parasitoids, weevils, myriad spiders, and dozens more species of arthropods, mollusks, and annelids that depend on oak leaf litter for nourishment and protection. He also echoes what Zara said by saying oak support more forms of life and more fascinating interactions than any other tree genus in North America. So go plant an oak tree and go buy this book. You won't regret it. So if you're planting a redwood, you're not necessarily going to see that cute bluebird because it's like, what is this redwood? No, I am looking for an oak tree and all of the, the little worms and bugs that are associated with oak trees because mm -hmm. that's where I, I get my food and that's my habitat. Right, so. right. That makes sense. So speaking of redwood trees and oak trees, yeah. One we would call probably a forest and one we would call a woodland, right? Yeah. What's the difference between a forest and a woodland? <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's a scientific explanation for that that I, I 
don't necessarily know off the top of my head. Forests are most generally, when you're talking about like coniferous trees, mm -hmm. redwoods, you know, tr things that you would consider a Christmas tree when you look at them. And woodlands are often much more spaced out um, and have a different shape. Things that are more rounder or messier trees is the really basic way of looking at it. They operate differently, even though both are super important for California. And they're found in different places and then sometimes kind of jumbled up all together mm -hmm. in the transition zones. And so would you call this then, because another term I've heard is savanna. So there's, oh. I've heard oak mm -hmm. woodland and oak savanna. And yeah. so what's kind of the difference there? So the savanna is really a designation of an oak woodland that has very few, very sparse trees. I think it's up to 30% canopy coverage. So where we're at right now, we're next to a creek. There's a lot of trees and a lot of other vegetation going on and mm -hmm. I would say close to the creek there's you know 80 or 90 percent canopy coverage mm -hmm. this is a riparian forest that we're sitting in but if you go to other parts of Folsom especially where you get more blue oaks you'll see that there's a big oak and then a large grassland area and then another mm -hmm. oak and then more grassland and that's the savanna okay. type of oak woodland. And can those areas not sustain as many oak trees? Is it is there not like enough water or? Yeah, it's kind of complex. A lot of it has to do with soils yeah, okay. and moisture availability. And the blue oaks grow at a little bit of an elevation, is that right? Or are they, can they be on the valley bottom too? There are some. If you look at maps of where oaks are in California, you'll notice there's just basically a big gap mm. in the Central Valley that there's no oaks here. And that's clearly not true. I right. mean, this oak has been here much longer than, yeah. I'd say at least three or 400 years. Uh -huh. So clearly there's oaks here. There's also very, very large blue oaks here in Sacramento, very low on the valley floor. Okay. So, you know, there's actually a pretty substantial oak, blue oak grove close to Discovery Park um, in the neighborhood, just a little bit east of there. So blue oaks and valley oaks are interesting and they're not always exactly where you expect them to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if they got there themselves or if people helped move them that, or... Yeah, only you could ask. It's quite possible. I mean, both are very good food trees. Both blue oaks and valley oaks have quite delicious flavor in their mm -hmm. acorns. So I'm absolutely certain that wise people move them about yeah. in the valley quite a bit. Let's grow some of these over here. Yeah. I once read that California supported more native people than anywhere else in what is now the United States before European contact because of the oak trees and the amount of oak trees that were here. But I was looking for that quote and I could not find it anywhere. So if anyone knows where that is, please send it to me. Anyways, what I did find is some really great information about how California's native people would tend oak woodlands. And this is from Kate Marion Child's Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, which is a fantastic book and I highly recommend it. So she says, California native people shaped and managed the lands for thousands of years, selectively harvesting plants and carefully burning, pruning, sowing, tilling, weeding, and transplanting. By burning the understory and grasslands every few years, many tribes protected their homelands from catastrophic fires while reducing populations of acorn pests, improving germination of seeds, and opening vistas that afforded better hunting and easier access to plants. So there's this very cool circle of people taking care of oak trees and oak trees taking care of people that I would really love to see us get back to a little bit more. And you talked a little bit about this too, how oaks support more species. And, and my question was going to be kind of why are oaks important? And I think oh. that speaks to that. But like, yeah. what are maybe some of the species that come to your mind that are really reliant on oak trees? Oh, man. Well, I mean, it, it, look at any ecosystem in which oak trees are part of it. And you'll see them as, as basically the baseline for 
pretty much everything. Mm. I've actually even heard them referred to as keystone plants. It's kind of hard to, to overestimate pretty much any insect that is important within within that ecosystem has a relationship with the oak tree. They wow. either live on it or they eat it or they overwinter on it or wow. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's really it really comes back to the insects and I've seen some really fascinating mm-hmm. actually there's been research here in Sacramento, I should point that out, it was done by a colleague of mine, his name's Dan Rolla, and mm-hmm. he lives in Curtis Park and he decided he's he's a bird guy. Mm-hmm. So he decided to do some bird studies on his own neighborhood, and he found that adding oak trees to the urban forest increased the bird diversity by quite a substantial amount. So as Zara said, Dan Arola has done some really cool work with bird diversity in urban forests. And one of his findings is that urban forest with oak supported eight bird species that were absent from urban forest without oak and supported substantially higher abundances of eight other species. So eight were there that were not even present in other oakless urban forest. And then an additional eight that were present in the other forest the without the oaks, there were just way more of them in the oaked areas. Another one of his studies showed that migrant birds just spent way more time foraging in oak trees than anywhere else, even though oak trees weren't as much of the canopy. So they spent 74% of their time foraging in oak trees, even though oaks were only 15% of that urban forest canopy. And all of this just goes to show how important oaks are to have even in our urban settings. They just, you know, we all need these things to survive. So that's why the oaks are important is because they're the baseline for everything, Mm -hmm. mostly because they support all of these insects. And people are always like, oh no, we don't want to encourage more insects. Have you ever seen a parasitoid wasp? No, they're so tiny. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time around oak trees and I've never seen <laughs> we one. We don't even see them. So it's not like the gnarly, these terrible, you know, I don't want fleas and right. mosquitoes in my yard mm-hmm. either. Like it's it's not those sorts of insects. It's the caterpillars, it's all the moths and the butterflies. Mm-hmm. and. Well, and maybe you're even attracting predators for the ones you don't want. Yes. Maybe you're attracting, what about arachnids? What about, do spiders come and eat these guys up? <laughs> I'm sure they do, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or, you know, the birds you were talking about, maybe mm-hmm. come and eat the the insects that you don't want around your garden, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, most of the studies have definitely been tied to things like birds and butterflies that people see and appreciate, you know, more. I actually haven't seen an arachnid and oak study, but that would mm-hmm. be fascinating. That's really interesting. So what types of oak trees, you mentioned that there were around 20 species mm-hmm. that are, are native to California. Mm-hmm. What are kind of maybe the top three or so that are really recognizable that you can point out. Oh, gosh. Maybe the people can kind of start looking for those ones as they're, as they're out and about. Yeah, it's, it's really regional, right? Mm-hmm. So it really depends on where you live. So if you're in Southern California, in Pasadena, they have the Engelman Oak, which mm. is almost extinct because Pasadena was built into this, you know, and other parts of, you know, that enormous city were, were built into this woodland. So Is that endemic to that region? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. If you go to the Channel Islands, there's, I think, two or three oak species that are only on the Channel wow. Islands. Here in the valley, it's really the valley oak is the most notable. And then kind of around the edges of the valley, the blue oak woodlands are kind of the classic. You see cows grazing in a beautiful, <laughs> lush, green area with oak trees. That's quite often blue oak woodlands. Let's see if you go out on the coast range. Coast live oak is an incredibly important and very common oak for much of the California coastline. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you go up towards the north part of the state, mostly coastal, you get Corcus Gariana. I'm blanking on its common name right now. (laughs) I looked it up and that is the Oregon white oak. Yeah, so it kind of depends on where you are in the state. And then there's also, 
a couple places where there's really interesting oaks that you don't necessarily see other places. Like there's there's a, an oak on Mount Tamalpais that oh. is supposedly it's its own thing, although there's I, now I've heard it's actually a hybrid of three oh, other oaks. And yeah, so there's, there's oaks all over. There's a lot that are little short shrubs. Mm-hmm. So if anybody says, oh, it's a scrub oak. So a scrub oak can mean you can refer to like seven or eight of the oak species in California mm-hmm. as a scrub oak. It's, it's you know, shrub-sized, evergreen, kind of pointy-leaved oak tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but depending on where you are in the state, that could be almost, that could be one of seven different kinds of oak trees. Right. And could so, it even be like a young live oak that people are mistaking it, for? <laughs> it could be. There, the young live oaks are funny because they just, they don't look like trees. They look terrible. They have these, they look like this <laughs> o- spiny wild octopus. We and, all go through an awkward phase, okay? Yeah. You know, they go through a bad one maybe. <laughs> well, and that's part of the reason that people don't like to plant them in mm. urban spaces is mm-hmm. because they're, when they're young, they look crazy and they're really hard to manage and they're different. You can't really prune them all. And a lot of people that like a tidy urban space, it's just not an easy tree to love in your landscape until it gets bigger. And then they get really nice. Um, I like them because they're really good climbing trees. Like if you're trying to plant a tree for mm. kids to climb on, mm-hmm. you know, picking either interior live oak here or on a coast live oak on the coast, like those are excellent climbing trees. So I'd like to see those in more like schoolyards and actually allow the kids to climb them. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I got to climb a lot of coast live oaks when I was a kid. Nice. They're, yeah, <laughs> I loved it. Really good for that. <laughs> My favorite. And then I started going to places with more manicured trees and I was like, why are the branches so high? I can't reach that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sad about it. Yeah. <laughs> how many, you mentioned a few, do you know off the top of your head how many endemic species of oak there are in Ooh, California? That's tough because there's a lot of them like will bounce into Oregon a little bit. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But a handful. There's a handful yeah, of them. There definitely are. You know, blue oak for, for sure is a California endemic. A valley oak, I think, actually is too. Really? The range is not, yeah, the range is not that large. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the Engelman oak in Southern California. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, that's really cool. Do you have a favorite? type of oak tree (laughs) it kind of depends on where i'm at Mm. you know when i'm working in this part of sacramento and you see these magnificent valley oaks they're definitely my favorite Mm -hmm. when i'm out on the coast i love the coast live oaks yeah i love the canyon live oak quercus chryslepis is a really gorgeous tree it has really fun acorn caps they're all Mm. big and golden it's also called the golden cup oak yeah it kind of depends on where i'm at so we talked a little about animals that rely on oak trees uh-huh. and invertebrates. What about plants? Do you know of any plants that rely on oak trees? So I haven't seen a whole lot of studies on there being direct relationships, but you know, oaks are engineers of their ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. They drop a lot of leaves, they build soil. So there are a lot of plants that you will most frequently find close by and associated to them, especially in harsher mm-hmm. landscapes because mm-hmm. they added more shade and they've built more soil and mm-hmm. there's some talk about how they move water through the soil too oh, um, if they can draw up more water from deeper they'll often release it and let their roots that are closer to the surface I mean 90 percent of a tree's roots are within the top three feet hmm. of the soil we have this idea that they send these huge crazy roots down and, and some oak species can have a tap root but usually not their whole life hmm. and not ever, all of them and not all the time mm-hmm. so by by all of those processes of them living they definitely create a little haven for more things to grow and I mean you can notice this even here like where is the tallest grass right now in early spring it's under where the oak trees are and that's because there's more nutrients and more soil in those spaces so yeah I mean yeah I guess you could say that the oak mistletoe does rely mostly grow in oak trees not completely 
There's and, a little bit on that one. But. And I think like I think a lot of people think of the oak mistletoe as just being like a parasite, right? Is it is it hurting the tree? Is it helping? It's like, definitely a parasite. And it depends on how much there is on how how much it's hurting the tree. Mm-hmm. I, I have very mixed feelings about it because it's a super important food source mm-hmm. for animals in the winter. It has berries in different times. Yeah, but it, mistletoe is definitely a parasite. It is definitely sucking its, you know, what it needs from the tree and not really giving anything back. Yeah, and you won't you don't see a lot of it here. There's some oak forests where you'll see a quite a bit of oak mistletoe. One of the things I've read about oak mistletoe is that like Zara said, it really is only hurting the trees if there's a lot of it in a tree or if it's a really dry year is the other one. So if there's extreme drought, then the oak mistletoe can stress the trees. But also as Zara points out, it's a really important food source to a lot of creatures. It is poisonous to humans, so watch out for that. But something that is not poisonous to humans. Let's learn about eating acorns. Okay, have you eaten acorns? Oh yeah. Yeah, a lot, all the time. Do you process them yourself? Sometimes, I'm Mm -hmm. pretty lazy. Like I quite frequently in Sacramento will just go to KP Market and buy it. KP Market, okay, this is is a good tip. I need to go over there. There's there's a lot of ethnic groups that have acorns as part of their diet. And Mm -hmm. luckily Sacramento being a really diverse place with a lot of people from a lot of parts of the world, you can definitely find acorns here. It's pretty common in Korean cooking and a bunch of other yeah. Wow, that's interesting. And do you have any favorite recipes that oh, you make with acorns? So bad. I mostly just like make cookies. Ooh. I mean, it's 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 a nice nutty flour. Like anything yeah. that you would put almond flour in to add, you know, really quality nutrition to, you can mm-hmm. use acorn flour for. So you can substitute it for other kind of nut flours mm-hmm. in general. And it just, how does it taste? Is it kind of nutty? It, Is it, it distinctive yeah, flavor? Yeah, it's definitely a little nuttier. I would, I, I don't know, I'm not a super fruity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very untraditional way to eat it. <laughs> there are plenty of people who are continue to eat acorns as a traditional food in a variety of ways. Yeah, and in Sacramento, if, if things ever get better, they used to do Acorn Day at the State Indian Museum oh, at Sutter cool. Fort, in which some of our local native practitioners would come show local traditional methods of um, gathering and preparing food, and actually you can they'll cook it up so you can eat it, which That's is really so cool. awesome. I just checked the State Indian Museum's website, and they don't currently have any events scheduled, but it might be worth checking again when it gets a little closer to the fall and closer to acorn season. Because you can't just pick up an acorn and eat it, right? Like, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> it wouldn't taste good. It would taste bad. Would it hurt you? Uh, no, I mean, no. You wouldn't be able to consume enough that it would really hurt you. Yeah. But it would taste very bitter and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. So, what's the process like to make them tasty? Yeah. Well. And different types of acorns have different flavors. Mm-hmm. I love to ask people who eat them frequently what their favorite species is. So the easiest way is to, to gather them and dry them. You want to make sure you don't get lots of insects in there mm. or you'll get rotten, gross. It'll be very unpleasant for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you, yeah, unbuggy acorns. And I honestly will like, I usually gather them, get good ones, and I'll throw them in a bucket in my garage here oh, cool. in Sacramento yeah. at least uh-huh. for a year. Mm-hmm. So they get all the way dry. And then um, you give a kid a hammer. I highly recommend <laughs> safety goggles. And, and you know, it's better if they don't fully smash it and you can just crack it and open it. It's enjoyable for everyone. Yeah. Kids love to smash things with a hammer. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some that you can get away with soaking just as a whole nut mm-hmm. and then drying again and turning it into flour. Some people like to smash them up and then, then leach it. Mm-hmm. But you definitely need to get the tannins out to make it more palatable mm-hmm. so it won't hurt your tummy. Okay. So you ha- you need to soak it at least for some period of time. There's a lot of ways to do this. You can do it in a jar in your fridge. Oh. You can 
just, you know, pour water through it multiple times. Nice. A um, lot of options. I've heard of the toilet tank method. Oh my god. <laughs> which I tried one time, but it definitely like kind of makes a mess. So oh, you put yeah, it in the, the upper yeah. tank where your clean water is. Yeah. But I know a lot of people put chemicals in your toilet, so I don't know if that's always a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I've never tried, you know, in a stream, but oh. that would work, right? Flowing water. For Flowing sure. water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And then this is a little bit more of a depressing question, but uh -oh. what are what are some threats? What's threatening oak trees <laughs> right now in California? Well, right now it's drought and people. Mm. I would say the the big two. There's also not. It's been recognized for at least 30 years that there's in most places not enough natural regrowth of baby oak trees to replace the ones that we're losing. Oh, wow. And we've already lost a huge amount. I mean, if you if you moved here, if you were if you were someone coming to California to search for gold and, you know, just wreaking havoc as you came, like that, this tree here would provide me enough good firewood for what, a whole two years? Yeah, a long so time. So let's just chop that one right down. Uh, right. You know, the, the first steam engines, they apparently cut down tons and tons of oak to, to feed the steam engines because mm. they had to keep those fires going. So yeah, we've lost a lot, a lot, a lot of oak trees. And, and people are a big culprit. Like even this beautiful big tree here that is in a park and basically not hurting anybody, you know, it would be probably best to just fence it off so people can enjoy looking at it mm -hmm. rather than at some point deciding it needs to be cut down. Some cities are better at this than others. Visalia, if you're ever in Visalia, go check out the oaks in the park. They've been allowing them to just act like oak trees and fall oh. apart and keep them as safe as possible. Yeah. And they have some very funky, that's very controversial with a lot of people, like mm -hmm. a traditional arborist is quite reasonably terrified by that because mm -hmm. structurally they're not as sturdy as they could be anymore. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think the best thing that people could do is, is to understand that, to try not to cut them down for bad reasons. Like, let's just start there. Let's mm -hmm. try not to cut down any more oak trees. Let's try not to cut down lots of oak trees and put in a winery. Like, let's just mm -hmm. not, let's not do that. And, and then make sure that there's some sort of replacement going on. As someone who grew up in a county with more than 400 wineries, let me just say, there are enough wineries. Although to be fair, there are some wineries out there that do not cut down existing trees and do things like creating green corridors to allow wildlife to access water and forest land, and doing things to revive riparian areas, streams, and wetlands. This is according to CaliforniaWineryAdvisory.com. I suspect that an approach like this takes a lot more time and energy and money, and I don't know enough about agriculture to speak to the complexities of that, but it'd be really cool if we could support farmers of all kinds to move in that direction. Okay, but for those of us who aren't in agriculture, what can we do? There's a lot of oaks that are actually great for, that you could grow on your property. Mm -hmm. Maybe not a valley oak. Like, <laughs> it is massive. <laughs> you, you might, you know, you should probably plant ahead. That's bigger um, than my house, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's massive. I mean, you can't, you could potentially, there's also a, a you know, a time thing. It's not going to get this massive for three or 400 years. So right, like, right. you could probably make an assumption of whether that's reasonable or not. But there's a lot of smaller sized native oak species mm -hmm. that do quite fine in a more natural landscape. And if we do do want to retain biodiversity and actually commit to urban biodiversity, I've heard that you should have 60% native plants in your mm -hmm. yard and maybe mm -hmm. you can't have a native tree because you don't have space. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, everything else you could quite easily do that. What size yard do you think would be required to get maybe what's like the smallest native oak? Because <laughs> I have a tiny yard. I don't think that I could grow one, which makes me really sad, but. Oh, there's some, t I mean, some of the shrub sized ones make okay, actually yeah 
if you can, the problem is, is that they're not really grown in the nursery business because uh -huh. they're, they, they, there's a very niche market and the nursery business is hard. They have to grow things that people are going to buy right. and people walk in and are like, look at that 20 foot tall redwood in a pot. I'm going to take that home. Right. But some of the smaller shrubby oaks, like locally, I've been giving people like Quercus barebrotifolia, which is one of the scrub oaks. It stays under about 10 feet and it's very shrubby. Like wow. if you wanted to block your window, it's kind of spiny. So it might keep people out of your side yard. There you go. And lots of wildlife depends on their oaks. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I thought I thought There's, that there was an oak oakless future for me, but maybe that's no, not true. <laughs> you need to find one of the shrubby ones. I know I just started some Quercus dorata, which is another like scrub oak from more central California, and it grows mostly on serpentine soils. That also could be a really fun smaller mm -hmm. landscape oak, not like this big old right, here. right. So if you're hearing this and you want to plant an oak tree, but you're not sure what kind, because there are so many here in California, a really good place to start is calscape.org, which is a garden planning site all about native plants. And so you can type in your zip code, find out what native plants are local to your area, and then find out how big they get and what their water needs are and all kinds of great information about them. So definitely check that out. How much room do you think you'd need to grow a valley oak that would and let it mature through its well, whole. Well, it, that's, you know, it's one of those arguments about like what's important. Like my house in Davis, I definitely, I have two valley oaks in oh, my front wow. yard. And there's a third one across, we're on like a funny corner. Mm -hmm. And you know, they're gonna get pretty big, but mm -hmm. I decided that it was reasonable and somebody's gotta plant some valley oaks in the city. Yeah, so, so if you're wanting to do that, do you think <laughs> it's just like, I'm just gonna be, I'm gonna have an arborist on speed dial, like to kind of keep the tree healthy, get rid of the branches before they fall, cut them off, like those kinds of things. You could definitely manage them. Yeah, mm -hmm. if you're willing to commit to managing it in an urban space, mm -hmm. you can. I mean, I have a pretty large like corner lot yard mm -hmm. with a lot of space, but it's also, it's a gamble, right? Like, okay, at 200 years, that tree's probably gonna need to come out, but mm -hmm. right now it's only 12 years old, so. Right, so we got a long time with that tree. <laughs> yeah. And the city arborists will, you know, argue with me until yeah. they're blue in their face. And that's totally fine. We can disagree on that. Yeah. What do you wish people knew about oaks? Oh, I wish that people could see their role in a more natural landscape and see how they pretty much support everything in the places where they're the main tree species. Because it's very easy for us to not recognize that mm -hmm. and just be like, oh, it'll be fine if we just don't have these anymore. We'll just plant some other tree. And But that's actually not true. That's going to mm -hmm. change everything. I also wish people thought more about roots mm -hmm. because it's you can't see them, right? They, you, they're not there. You can't mm -hmm. see them. They're not immediately present, but if you damage the roots, you're going to kill your tree. Mm. I think one of the, the best examples of this in the last 10 years or so in Elk Grove, the city needed to build wider roads to accommodate the traffic for the people living there. And mm. there was a big, beautiful tree that they're like, okay, well, we're going to avoid it. We're going to make the road be kind of weird to go around the tree. Mm -hmm. But it really did not, it caused so much root damage that within five years, the tree died anyway. Mm. And that was totally foreseeable. Yeah. <laughs> so like part of me is like, you know, you could have just been like, we're just going to do it and cut down the tree. And then let's make sure that we preserve other trees. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I, I wish that we were a little bit more clear on that decision making. We do have more protections here than most places. Mm -hmm. But we really should, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think it ever makes sense to cut down a 300 year old tree to make a road wider. It's just what you're losing is, is you're losing something that is taken a hundred years to grow and and there's all these animals and things that depend on and probably know that tree and you're mm -hmm. just like ah oh, whatever right yeah 
and you need to go by here faster. Yeah, it, our human perspective does not align very well with theirs, and that's why right. we're destroying them. Yeah, and and like you said, people probably think that the roots go down and not out, and so they fail to realize that they are damaging the roots. Mm-hmm. So if I were to be able to get a, a extra vision, my extra goggles on, what would I see? What would the roots look like under that tree? Yeah, so this tree is what, let's say it's like 70 feet wide. Huge, yeah. So all the way under where the branches are, there is a really thick conglomeration of roots. And how deep are those underground? Um, so they're all, the top, you know, three feet of soil mm-hmm. is totally full of them. Mm-hmm. And then there's larger roots. And I would say there's some that are all the way in the creek, Whoa. at least three times really? as wide. Yeah. There's some probably going under the bike path. Oh my God. Over here. So it's, it's massive. It's, you know, two to three times as wide mm. as this. And this tree is huge. Yeah. And that's where we get in trouble with these big trees because we're like, oh, I'm not that close. I'm not going to hurt it. Gotcha. Yeah. But so, you are. Yeah. And you can damage a certain percentage of the roots every year and probably not hurt it too much. But, you know, if you put it in a little box and you chop everything to, you know, just the size of the tree, you've really mm. drastically limited. Well, yeah. And the it. one that is probably going all the way over to the creek is probably vital to the tree's health, probably. right? To be able to get consistent yeah. water. Yeah. Oh, look, a squirrel. Hey. Wildlife. It's been a little quiet up in that canopy it since has. we've been I here. I saw a bird a minute ago. It, was, it went by too fast, so I didn't see oh. what it was, but there was a bird up there. Okay, and then my last question is, what about the work that you do or oak trees or oak woodlands? What about it just still takes your breath away? That's a tough question. Well, I mean, today was fun because I don't come here and look at these trees because mm-hmm. we cared for them only for a few years. Mm-hmm. So to show up to a space and see it completely transformed mm-hmm. and the fact there's actually a lot more birds and there's a bunch of people enjoying this space. I think that's the thing is is being able to think more on the time scale of a tree. And, you know, when you look at something and it's you're, you're planting an acorn and it's tiny, you know, the, the possibility for that tree to then be this one. Yeah in a couple hundred years is pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah, it's a nice gift. And it's cool to be able to see it yeah. along, its, <laughs> along its way. It helps I mean, if you can get part way. Yeah, right, for absolutely. Sure. For sure. All right, thank you so much, Zara. I really appreciate it. No problem. Did you find new reasons to love oak trees? I hope so. Okay, one last thing about oak trees. During the interview, I completely forgot to ask Zara how oak trees spread with those super heavy seeds. And so I emailed them and they delivered with this answer. Oak trees have a very, very slow migration rate due to those big heavy seeds, which is a big part of why they're struggling with climate change and urbanization. Jays, scrub jays in our region, are excellent oak planters and are tied to oak forest and regeneration where they coexist worldwide. Other creatures can also assist with moving acorns such as ground squirrels, but jays, and in the past humans, move them furthest, fastest. I think most life histories of the oak discount the impact native Californians had on their past and current distribution and success. Acknowledging this and including indigenous people in restoration and landscape stewardship is imperative. For non-wildlife assisted seed dispersal, most acorns that sprout, natural oak regeneration occurs directly under and adjacent to the canopy of mature oak trees. This means that we need to actively reforest areas without trees if we hope to increase oak canopy cover or oak habitat, of which Sacramento 
volcano has lost 90 plus percent over the last 200 years. They aren't going to move very far or very fast or be able to overcome our urban development to persist without help. So we gotta help the oak trees. And the other thing that they said is that Douglas Tallamy, in addition to the nature of oaks, also has another book, Bringing Nature Home, which he's actually better known for. And it's all about how we can improve biodiversity by planting native plants in our yards. And Zara says he encourages landscaping with native plants and to not undervalue microhabitats in urban spaces. So such fantastic information. <laughs> Thank you, Zara. One side note on this is that all of this love for oaks does not diminish my love for other native plants. We need a wide variety of native plants because there are many species of insects that specialize and will only lay eggs on or eat one plant. So think monarch butterflies and milkweed. It's just that oaks are the most impactful, so they're a great place to start with native plants, especially since you can choose a small one or several small ones since they're wind pollinated. Okay, this episode is getting really long, so I'll try to wrap it up. I just want to make sure to send out some love and some thank yous before I go. So first, to the Sacramento Tree Foundation, thank you so much for letting me take Zara away from you on what was actually her very last day with Sac Tree. She's relocating and so she had to move on from her position there. And thank you also for just being so genuinely supportive and encouraging when you heard about this podcast and heard what I was doing and for just backing me up. You guys rock. I wanted to send out also a little notice to everybody that the big day of giving is coming up and Sack Tree would be so happy to have donations from you so that they can continue doing the truly amazing and impactful work that they are doing. So think about them on May 5th and running up to May 5th. You can follow them on social media to find out more about that. They are at Sack Tree on Instagram and their website is sacktree.org. I also wanted to say thank you again to all of my patrons and to everyone who has left me a review in the past couple of weeks. You can find me on Instagram at Golden State Naturalist, and my website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. And you can look at that if you want to see a dorky picture of me popping out of some fennel with binoculars. So definitely check that out. An interesting thing from my week is that I pulled out my old laptop that I got in 2005, and you guys, it still works. And I found some old poetry on that laptop that I wrote as a very angsty 20-year-old, so that was fun and also surprisingly emotional. Thanks for sticking around until the very end of the episode. I hope you're as excited about oak trees as I am. Until next time, stay curious. Bye! The song you just heard is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song as well as to the Creative Commons license in the show notes. Bye-bye.